President Biden pledged to stop work on the wall on the southern border, but this week his administration said it's moving forward on a piece of it. It's Friday, October 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, John Oliver, the host of Last Week Tonight, discusses returning to the air after the writer's strike. It was obviously a hugely unsettling time for everybody who I work with, so the waves of relief are still hitting us. Also, the Baltimore Orioles won 101 games this season, the second most in baseball after several recent off years. O's fans are excited and surprised about the playoffs. I keep asking, is this for real? I can't, you know, I have to pinch myself. Is this really happening? It's 401 First, this news. Hi, from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is weighing in on the prospects of House Republicans choosing a new speaker who's more of a conservative hardliner than ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, former President Trump has endorsed Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio. Jordan has been one of the lead House investigators trying to dig up evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden, his son and the Justice Department. Biden was asked if he could work with him. For some people, I imagine it could be easier to work with than others. But uh, whoever the speaker is, I'll try to work with. In remarks celebrating another good jobs report, Biden called for Congress to get back to work on passing a budget. The current temporary spending measure expires in mid-November. And at the moment, the House is at a standstill as Republicans try to choose a new speaker. Tamara Keith, NPR News at the White House. And in that jobs report, the Labor Department says employers added 336,000 jobs in September, surprising economists. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.8 percent. The co-founder of disgraced crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried's companies testified against him at trial today. As NPR's David Gura reports, Gary Wong says he was part of a conspiracy to defraud customers and investors. Jurors are hearing from former members of Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle. Gary Wong was Bankman-Fried's friend at MathCamp and then MIT. The two of them co-founded FTX and Alameda Research, a crypto hedge fund. And in his testimony, Wong detailed how he made changes to the computer code underpinning FTX to allow that hedge fund to take billions of dollars in FTX customer money. Wong has pleaded guilty to criminal fraud charges and has a cooperation agreement. Prosecutors say Caroline Ellison, who ran Alameda and was Bankman-Fried's on-again, off-again girlfriend, will testify on Tuesday when the trial resumes. David Gura, NPR News, outside U.S. District Court in Lower Manhattan. The United Auto Workers Union says it won't expand strikes at Detroit's big three automakers for now. This amid progress in contract talks, including General Motors agreeing to cover electric vehicle battery workers under the contract. UAW head Sean Fain. We were about to shut down GM's largest moneymaker in Arlington, Texas. The company knew those members were ready to walk immediately. And just that threat has provided a transformative win. GM has now agreed in writing to place their electric battery manufacturing under our national master agreement. That's a significant concession for GM, given that automakers have been reluctant to include EV battery plants, which are critical in the transition to an electric future in these talks. Preliminary closing numbers on Wall Street, the Dow is up 288 points, the Nasdaq up 211. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts says the Biden administration needs to do more to help Massachusetts manage an influx of migrants. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Presley and other members of Massachusetts' congressional delegation have addressed the shelter crisis with political leaders on Beacon Hill. Last month, Governor Healy sent President Biden a letter pleading for more federal support. And Presley told WBUR's Radio Boston she hears that message loud and clear. Massachusetts taxpayers cannot be uh, burdened and fit the bill for what is a national crisis. For a sense of how big the bill for Massachusetts taxpayers might be, Healy last month asked the legislature for a quarter of a billion dollars to help prop up the shelter system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Tufts University today officially welcomed its new president. Sunil Kumar was inaugurated and is now the 14th president of Tufts. On his agenda, Kumar says he plans to increase diversity and expand housing for students. Former Worcester Mayor Jordan Levy is being remembered as a true Worcester legend. He died last night after being ill for several years. He was Worcester's first popularly elected mayor. Levy was first elected to the Worcester City Council in 1975. Jordan Levy was 79 years old. The long holiday weekend getaway is creating some backups on the Mass Pike. Traffic slow westbound from 495 to Sturbridge. The State Department of Transportation is trying to alleviate slowdowns. All road construction is halted through the weekend. Although the Sumner Tunnel is closed for repairs most weekends, the Sumner is open this weekend. The MBTA's commuter rail is offering unlimited travel for $10 from tomorrow through Monday. It is 66 degrees in Boston. A slight chance of some showers tonight, lows overnight in the low 60s. Rain likely tomorrow, Saturday's highs in the upper 60s, and then Sunday, mostly sunny skies with temperatures in the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When President Biden was running for office, he pledged to stop work on the wall. The wall on the southern border had been a signature policy of his predecessor, former President Donald Trump. But this week, his administration said, in fact, it is moving forward with a piece of that wall in Texas. Two of our correspondents are here to talk about why this is happening and what it means politically for Biden. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration, and Asma Khalid is our White House correspondent. Good to have you both here. It's good to be here. Hey, Ari. Joel, let's start with you. Where exactly is this segment of border wall, and why has it become this big flashpoint? Yeah, this is a segment of up to 20 miles of wall in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, rural Star County, just outside of McAllen, which has been a a big crossing hotspot this year. The planning for this has been in the works for years. The money was actually appropriated during the Trump administration, but it became a big deal this week when the Biden administration put a notice in the Federal Register saying that it would waive more than two dozen environmental laws to build this segment of wall. It is not the first border wall that's been built under the Biden administration. They have completed some other sections, but it would be the first major segment to begin construction on his watch. And as you've noted, this is a reversal of some of his earlier promises, and that has touched off a lot of anger. 
So, Asma, how did the White House justify this? What are they saying? Yeah, well, I was at the White House yesterday, and we went into the Oval Office for a few minutes to cover this meeting that the president was having with uh, a couple folks within his national security team. And he was pressed on why he's agreeing to build this new chunk of wall, despite the fact that he pledged during the 2020 campaign not to do this. And uh, I think we should hear the president's response in his own words. The border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. So Ari, basically what he was saying is that Congress has the power of the purse. They directed the money to be spent on this, and he had to comply with the law. Uh, It is a message that he reiterated earlier today as well, that basically his administration had no choice in this matter. He was also asked by a reporter if he believes the border wall works, and he said simply no. Uh, This White House went through great lengths, I would say, in the last 24 hours to say that this is not an administration change in policy. They do not believe the border wall is effective. They think other, you know, tools, technology and surveillance would be more effective uses of this money. But ultimately, they say they have no choice. I want to say one last thing, Ari, here, and that is that the way that this was all rolled out, the Federal Register notice did cause a lot of confusion. And uh, this really dominated the White House press briefing yesterday. And I don't think the White House has been or was very clear about why it was doing it at this particular moment. Well, let's talk about how this fits into the Biden administration's border policy. Joel, can you put this development in context for us. Yeah. Well, so Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas also insisted yesterday that this is not a shift in policy when it comes to border walls. He said, quote, there will be no more wall construction, unquote. That said, the administration is very much trying to get illegal border crossings down. Those crossings were lower for a while over the summer after the administration rolled out some new legal pathways and tougher enforcement measures at the border. But now crossings are climbing again sharply near the record numbers that we saw last year and a single month record of 50,000 Venezuelan migrants crossed in September fleeing from economic and political turmoil there. The Biden administration said yesterday, by the way, that it will resume deportation flights directly to Venezuela, but it is not clear how many flights there will be or if that's really going to have much of an effect on migration. Yeah, and if I can jump in here, I mean, the the president has been under enormous pressure on this issue of immigration, of course, from the right, but also now from Democratic mayors and governors who are saying that their cities are overwhelmed, their resources are overwhelmed with just the sheer number of migrants who have been arriving. And in recent weeks, there have actually been a flurry of meetings between top White House officials and some of these governors and mayors, Democrats. And President Biden is needless to say running for real election. So talk about the politics of this. How is this likely to play with constituents? I think the real place where this could potentially pose a challenge for Biden is with the progressive wing of his own party, younger Democratic voters. Uh, They are disappointed that he did not choose, they say, to slow walk this border wall, that even if he had to comply with it, is there not some way in which he could have maybe just may kind of let the clock run out here? Uh, For example, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York said yesterday that the Biden administration did not have to waive the environmental laws to expedite this process. I will say the White House is extremely sensitive to the fact that young voters are a key part of their coalition that they need for Biden to win re-election. Uh, there's been a whole slew of things that they've announced recently. I'm thinking of the Climate Corps, this gun violence prevention office that really are issues that matter to young voters. I don't really know how this will all play out. I will say, though, that the challenge Biden faces, I think, on immigration is that it's an issue where he's pushed on the right, but he's also pushed from different flanks of his own party, and Mm -hmm. they don't all agree on what to do. NPR's Asma Khalid and Joel Rose, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. 
This week, you might have indulged in a long-forgotten pleasure, sinking into your couch for your favorite late-night shows. Shows like John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. Late-night shows like his went dark in May because of the writer's strike. But now that writers and studios have reached a tentative agreement, Last Week Tonight is back in production. And in the latest episode, Oliver did not hide his frustration with how long it took to strike a deal. It took a lot of sacrifices from a lot of people to achieve that. And while I'm happy that they eventually got a fair deal and immensely proud of what our union accomplished, I'm also furious that it took the studios 148 days to achieve a deal that they could have offered on day one. John Oliver is here with me now. John, welcome to All Things Considered. It's lovely to be with you. So first of all, just how does it feel to be back on the air? Oh, it's a massive relief. I mean, not so much to be back on air, but just to be back having everyone at work. Uh, You know, it was obviously a hugely unsettling time for everybody Uh, who I work with. So yes, the waves of relief are still hitting us. If you could think back to what it was like when you learned that there was an agreement and that the writers that you have worked with who helped build the show, that you all were able to work together again, what did it feel like for you? It was a huge relief for, again, for everybody, not just the writers, right? It was difficult for everybody just to be without the innate purpose that you feel of getting to do your job every day. We really do love this as much as we're exhausted and irritated by it at times. It's so much fun. It's such a fun way to spend a significant portion of your life. So to get to do it again, to get to kind of direct this machine at fascinating stories once more is still, I'm hoping that that my staff and that I kind of are able to kind of bottle this feeling of excitement and relief uh, and to remember Remember that feeling in three months when we're completely exhausted. For sure. Is there one thing that you think it's important for people to understand about what goes into making a show like yours and the people who you work with day in and day out that help you put it together? It's a massive collaborative effort. So I know this this strike was just about the writers, but we have researchers, footage producers, graphics. It's at its best, this show functions as something that ends up much better than the sum of its parts. There's value added at every point of our process. So only as you get people all together can you kind of take these stories and have them rigorously researched with fascinating footage and utterly silly jokes on top of it, hopefully making the whole thing go down easier. As you were spending those five months waiting to see what the outcome of the strike would be, obviously hopeful that it would be one that was beneficial to the writers, was there like a particular moment in the news cycle that you were sitting there that was painful for you to miss, to not be able to play with? I mean, honestly, it wasn't so much individual stories flying by. It, it was more knowing the big stories, those those main deep dive stories that we work on, knowing how badly we wanted to put some of those on air. And honestly, it was really more concerns about practicalities. You know, you, when you run these shows, you're responsible for a lot of people. They have to be paid. You can't just cut them off. It was more kind of a constant background terror of how are we going to make sure that people are paid. How are you all able to keep people paid? Stand up. Stand up. I'm so, so grateful. I, ca- I cannot tell you how grateful I am for people that came to see me around the country doing some very hastily written stand up. <laughs> That was 
you could make a case for the fact some of that stand-up was not yet fit for human consumption, but people consumed it. And I'm massively grateful because yeah, everyone who came to see me do stand-up in theatres around the country uh, really directly helped us uh, pay our staff. So, that, yeah, that's really, that's the short answer. That's how. So the Writers Guild has called the deal that it struck with studios, quote, exceptional. And I know that that contract is still being ratified, but... What terms in the new agreement were most important to your team? What have they told you about it? To our team? I mean, it's it's so broad, right? So, so much of the contract honestly doesn't really apply to late night variety shows. But I think it's really more incremental gains across the entire industry going forward at a point where it seems like the industry is undergoing something of a seismic shift. So, you know, how well it works, you can never tell right on the page, right? It's the application of that is where the proof is in the in the pudding then. So we will see if it's uh, if it's as good as everyone wants it to be going forward. Does it feel like the studios have a new understanding of what these writers need? I have no idea. I have no idea. I would you would really hope so, but I I would have hoped that understanding was evident on day one. Uh, so I, I could not crawl into a studio executive's head, partly because <laughs> I cannot imagine what kind of a place that is to live in. That was John Oliver, host of the late night TV show last week tonight. John, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Juana. It's lovely to be with you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418 and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, cartoonist Daniel Klaus discusses his highly anticipated new graphic novel, Monica. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. In business news, several Massachusetts residents have landed on Forbes magazine's list of wealthiest Americans. Fidelity Investments CEO Abigail Johnson is ranked 29th nationally. She's worth $25.5 billion. Patriots owner Bob Kraft is 62nd on the list. He's worth a little more than $11 billion. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up just under 1%. The S&P finished up just over 1%. And the Nasdaq ended the day up 1.6%. Marketplace will have all the day's business news at 630 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, where you can see historian Heather Cox Richardson live and in person. It's free thanks to sponsors like Stone Foundation. Details at bostonbookfest.org. It is 66 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers tonight and lows in the low 60s. Rain likely tomorrow, Saturday's highs in the upper 60s and on Sunday, mostly sunny and temperatures in the mid 60s. WBUR's Field Guide to Boston gives you a new approach to experience this place we call home. Go on, get out there, find your way at wbur.org slash field guide. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Juana Summers in Baltimore. I am standing just outside of one of the gates to Camden Yards, which is where the Baltimore Orioles play. It is a perfectly crisp fall night, and fans are still streaming into the ballpark, many of them wearing hoodies and jackets, along with their Orioles jerseys. Something different is happening here this year, and it's something that hasn't happened for the Baltimore Orioles in years, and you can really feel it all over the city. I keep asking, is this for real? I can't, you know, I have to pinch myself. Is this really happening? That's Orioles fan Joanne Mandel. For someone like her, who's been a fan since she moved to Baltimore, 50 years ago? That's a big deal. I met her and Kathy Buckner as they were walking away from the stand that was selling black and orange Orioles shirts and hats. They both have long memories of this team. Here's Buckner. I remember the 66 World Series and the 80s when there was big birds and everything was exciting and then it just, uh, everything sort of fell apart. Then it was frustrating to watch. It was tough to stay a fan. How did you do it? Because it was, did not seem fun. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's some black and orange somewhere in my blood that, that still is there. She is talking about the dark days of being an Orioles fan, when diehard fans suffered through years of despair. The Orioles won their last World Series in 1983. And in the four decades since, the team hasn't been back. And some recent years have been rough three recent seasons, the Orioles recorded at least 108 losses. But not this year. The Orioles ended the regular season with a historic 101 wins, and as the American League East champions, only one team in the major leagues had a better record. And tomorrow, the Orioles will play the Texas Rangers in the American League Division Series here in Baltimore. I mean, if you're a true fan, this is like your Christmas. That's Maureen Hall. We met her just outside the gates to the ballpark. She and her friend Robin Goodwin were decked out from head to toe. Hall was sporting a black Orioles jersey and orange camouflage pants, and she wore this oversized Oriole bird hat. Goodwin was carrying a hand-painted Orioles shield, and both of them were wearing these big orange chains with Oriole O's hanging from them. Tell us about these outfits. We're here to win a World Series again. <laughs> yes, definitely a World Series. Yeah. yeah, we'll go right to the World Series. All right, so we've got the hats, we've got the chains, we've got the shields. Do you just turn up like this for every game that you go to? Yes. Oh, this is mild. Wait yes. till Paul and Goodwin told us they have been waiting years for an Orioles team that looks as good as this one does. It's like a light at the end of the tunnel. But this team has also inspired a new generation of fans, like 16-year-old Mai Bolster, who was carrying this huge baseball-shaped double-sided sign. My mom helped me with these. Um, this side says, I want an Adley hug. An Adley hug. That's a reference to Orioles catcher Adley Rutschman, who's one of the team's young stars. I was definitely a fan in, like, when I was younger, like, maybe 2015, 16. But then I kind of didn't watch them as much for a, a little bit. 
Um, I, my dad did, I know that. <laughs> Mai came to the game with their dad, Peter. What do the two of you like about going to games together? They're funny. And I, they, they like they like the game, so that's pretty cool. It's I, not, not often your father and kid get to go to a game together. So. I, I actually watch more of the actual game now, though. <laughs> when I was younger, I didn't. I was more interested in maybe the cotton candy or the playground. Peter Bolster told us he moved to Baltimore back in 1989, and before that, he had never lived anywhere with the team he could root for. And that was one of the good years. And so I kind of caught the fire at that at that moment. And ever since then, I've been a pretty avid fan. Uh, the last few years have obviously been pretty dismal. And uh, it was even really starting to stretch my ability to be a dedicated fan. That is ancient history. If you live in Baltimore now like I do, there's a tangible energy around this team. There's hope, community, and just plain excitement. You walk down the street and you hear the game coming out people's windows. That's John Mioli. He's a sports columnist for the Baltimore Banner. You think about how different that is from recent years, and and, and it kind of goes to show just how worthwhile all the work that's taken uh, this organization to get to this point, how worthwhile it was. That work that Mioli's talking about, it took years, starting right after the team's dismal 2018 season. That's when general manager Mike Elias took over. At the end of 2018, the team hit a wall and started breaking apart, and it was the worst season in the history of the Baltimore Orioles. To be clear, it was awful. 47 wins, 115 losses. Some of the infrastructure deficits that the front office had in baseball operations, a lack of a strong international scouting operation, a lack of a modern analytics department, um, some fractured unity in, the, in the, the way the organization was run for the last few years, it all came to a head and we needed to start over. Elias has stockpiled young talent and revamped the Orioles' infrastructure to develop it. And that long rebuild has paid off with the likes of young players like catcher Adley Rutschman and shortstop Gunnar Henderson. And many of those young players have never been in the postseason spotlight before. We asked Mike Elias how he was preparing them. You know, we have a few veterans in the team that have had some postseason experience, but really it's it's not that much, relatively speaking. And so this is going to be new for the whole team, but they've been uh, had the odds stacked against them every day. So I don't think the playoffs are going to be much different from them. They're pretty level-headed. I think they'll be excited. There'll be some butterflies, maybe some early jitters, but I expect them to play very well. When we talked to Elias, he was also very clearly thinking about building a team that has staying power beyond this historic season. We want to keep our franchise at a championship caliber like this so that every year we go into the American League East with a chance to win it and uh, hopes of making a deep playoff run. The immediate question, though, is where this year's team will go from here. We asked the fans, starting with 16-year-old Mai Bolster. Do you feel like this team that we're watching this season has the ability to go the distance? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was fast. A little less definitive, but still supportive answer came from Eric Biorum, who started following the Orioles in the 70s, and he hung on through the highs and the lows. He drove down from York, Pennsylvania to see the Orioles play. If not this year, next year, playoff is different than regular season games. And you have to gain experience, and they have this young core, this unbelievable core of players, I think 
they're in for the long run. Lachelle Pierce Fogel loves coming to games with her big extended family. She told us she is rooting for the Orioles, but also for the city. You know, it's so much opportunity right here around the park, um, in the park itself. So us winning, like it, Baltimore needs a win. So this is great. And now these fans will wait to see just how far these Orioles fly. Juana, sounds like an exciting time there in Baltimore. You know, it really has been. I have to tell you, I drive down from Baltimore to Washington to host this show with you and our colleagues every day. And this morning, I drove right past Camden Yards, and there were a ton of people around, tons of cars, and I didn't know why. And then I looked and I saw that tons of drivers were actually waiting in line to get these bright orange Orioles O's stenciled on their car. So if that's not an indication that we are swept up in Orioles magic in Baltimore, I don't know what is. I might have to go up the road and take a look. Come on by. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429, and coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered, federal officials told 16 states that they've been underfunding their historically black colleges and universities by some $12 billion. Tennessee State University had the biggest loss. It is 66 degrees in Boston. A slight chance of showers tonight. Then tomorrow, rain likely. Saturday's highs in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With a goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com. Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets. On stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I am a girl. Joan Baez has been a legend in music since she was a teenager. But offstage, she struggled. After so many years of anxiety, panic attacks, etc., I thought, you know, there's something in there I need to get to. June Baez, I Am a Noise, a new documentary, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Former President Donald Trump is giving the thumbs up to Republican Congressman Jim Jordan and his bid to become the next Speaker of the House. Jordan has emerged as one of the frontrunners to succeed Kevin McCarthy, who was removed from his leadership role earlier this week. Scott Jennings is a conservative political analyst for CNN. He thinks Jordan is gaining momentum. I think there will be people who obviously want to be on the Trump team, and I think there's other members of Congress who don't want to be told from outside the chamber what they have to do. And so I don't think it's definitive, but it does uh, give, I think, Jordan the sense of momentum. Congressman Jordan is a close ally and fierce defender of the former president and says he appreciates Trump's support. He also claims he can help unify the fractured Republican Party. Also vying for the speaker's job are House Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Oklahoma Congressman Kevin Hearn. The Georgia state troopers who shot and killed a protester in January near the site of Atlanta's planned public safety training facility will not be charged. From member station WABE, Emily Wu Pearson has more on the decision. 
District Attorney George Christian names six state troopers who shot Manuel Tehran more than 50 times while clearing out protesters who had set up camp in a forest next to the construction site. Critics have protested for years against the planned 85-acre, $90 million police and fire training facility, dubbing it Cop City. The report says state troopers asked Tehran to leave, fired pepper spray balls, then in response to gunshots, fired into Tehran's tent. The district attorney says because troopers feared for their lives, appropriate force was used. The troopers were not wearing body cameras, but other law enforcement recorded audio of the shooting. That audio will not be released. For NPR News, I'm Emily Wu Pearson in Atlanta. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. The tech-heavy Nasdaq up 1.5%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Boston police are hosting an event this evening aimed at improving relations between officers and members of the community. It's part of the National Faith and Blue Collaborative to promote mutual respect and understanding. Mary Ellen Burns is communications chief for the Boston Police Department. That's what community policing is all about, is just getting people together, getting them to talk, to know each other, because how do you trust people that you don't have some interaction with or talk to. So we try to get out and meet as many people across the city as we possibly can. And this is just another way to do that. The event will take place at the Norman B. Leventhal Park on Congress Street. Boston is getting $11 million from the federal government to plant more trees in the hottest neighborhoods in the city. Mayor Michelle Wu said today that the initiative will expand the canopy of trees in Roxbury, Dorchester, Chinatown, and East Boston, where temperatures soar in the summer. Here's a reason to smile. Today is World Smile Day. It was started more than two decades ago by the late Harvey Ball of Worcester. Ball created the iconic yellow smiley face. The executive director of the Worcester Historical Museum, Bill Wallace, says this is a day to honor the inventor. We all need a smile every day, and this international icon was right here from Worcester. So World Smile Day was his request that we all celebrate at least once a year, and as his motto said, do an act of kindness help one person smile. Ball devised the smiley face in 1963. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And Elliott Community Human Services, recovery-oriented care with evidence-based treatment for behavioral health and substance needs. ElliottCHS.org. It is 66 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers tonight with overnight lows in the low 60s. Tomorrow, rain likely. Saturday's temperatures in the upper 60s. Sunday should be mostly sunny with highs in the mid-60s. Looking ahead to the holiday on Monday, sunshine and highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Daniel Klaus is a giant in the world of comics and graphic novels. From his Lloyd Llewellyn cartoon to his graphic novel and eventual movie Ghost World, Klaus's work is both beloved and revered. But fans of the graphic artist and cartoonist have had to wait some seven years for a new installment of his work. It arrived this week, and even though it's being greeted as another triumph, Klaus isn't feeling that great about it. It's kind of like raising a child and then releasing it to the world is like putting that child when they're not fully grown, like alone on the subway or something. It feels very, it's like, what am I doing? That not quite grown child riding the subway alone is Monica. Klaus weaves together nine interconnected stories to show the full picture of Monica's life, cradle to grave, from being abandoned by her mother as a child to her mysterious connection to the afterlife. Klaus, whose own mother left him with his grandparents when he was five, says he was trying to capture the emotional chaos of growing up in that time. His therapist had a slightly different take. He said, I think you've created a friend. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yes. I've just uh, I've cre- tried to create somebody who sort of shared uh, the same emotional experience I had growing up. When I spoke to Klaus earlier this week, I asked him about that connection between him and his protagonist. Monica is someone who faces so much of her life alone in that search for her mother. And I know that you yourself were left with your grandparents when you were five. So how much of Monica is autobiographical? There's not a single fact, I think, you know, that lines up with my life, but the the beats of her life, sort of the rhythm of her childhood and adulthood line up, you know, sort of algebraically <laughs> exact with 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 those of my life. Um, in, in this story, Monica's mother runs a candle shop and that's sort of her her dream. And uh, my mother ran a auto repair shop. That was her dream. You mentioned that your therapist suggested that in Monica, you created a friend. What do you take away from that relationship with Monica, who is, of course, of your creation? You know, I've created a lot of characters over the years, and some of them seem like they only exist in the pages of the book. But Monica feels, despite the ending of the book, which I won't reveal, she feels like she she still exists out there somewhere, you know, and I might one day actually meet her. That happens sometimes where uh, where characters just feel like they're out there living their own lives. And you'll meet readers who who act that way. They, they act as though the characters are independent of my creation. They're just talking about them like they're people. And that's always very gratifying. I do want to ask if I can about one particular page in the book. And it's bright blue and there's a hummingbird in the cover. And there are only a little more than a dozen words. And you write... In memoriam, Allison, Jimmy, Richard, and Gary all lost during the making of this book. First of all, I'm very sorry for those losses, but I'd like you to tell us a bit about them, if you can, who those people were and what they meant to you. Well, Allison and Jimmy were my mother and my brother, um, who died just a few months apart right before the pandemic in Mm. 2019. And I had a very strange relationship with both of them. I was I was not very close to them, but of course they were immense, indelible parts of my growing up in my, my life. And so it was, you know, I'm sort of grappling as I was working on the book with, with you know, what did they mean to me? What I, I was even just trying to figure out the events of my childhood 
what actually happened. Nobody ever talked about that kind of thing. But Richard and Gary were two of my dearest friends who were both cartoonists. And those two are really huge presences in my life and their their influences felt in the book itself. I feel like Richard especially was somebody I knew. His name was Richard Sala, wonderful artist. He really haunts the book. He's really almost an unseen character in the book. It's It's almost like I did the book for him. Where do you see and feel him the most in the book? He was, uh, his art style was very much, he did horror comics, you know, very about conspiracies and everybody was out to get the main character and they were all uh, haunted little towns and, and things like that. So in, in that story, The Glow Infernal, I'm almost paying homage to him. I'm almost uh, covering his territory that he was very protective of anytime in the past that I would try to do a story in that vein, he would say, that's mine, you know, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> so it, it was almost like I was both free to finally do the, these kinds of stories and also continuing his, his legacy to some degree. I mean, there is a lot about the occult and um, the afterlife throughout this book, but there are also these cults that really kind of come across as sort of scams, not genuinely supernatural. So how do you approach questioning life's unknowns and straddling the line between belief and skepticism? Well, that's that's what the, the book is kind of an investigation of that, the things that we imbue onto life to, to give it some kind of meaning and the, the structures we imagine, you know, the idea of creating religions or cults or things like that. It's very similar to writing fiction in a way or creating characters or creating worlds. Uh, like in comics, you know, I often, I, I had a very unhealthy fascination with cults when I was a teenager growing up in the 70s, you know, and I was, you know, I was very interested in like the SLA and and reading all about that stuff because it was, it in a certain way, all cults feel very, uh, it's it's got its appeal, you know, the idea of like, we're a little group that we have our own beliefs and we don't, you know, often they're, you know, anti-technology and things that I kind of believe in and you know, they're uh, communities of people that all care for each other and all have respect for each other and that there's something to be said for that. But then they all turn horrible at a certain point. And it's it's always interesting to me to to try to imagine what like the ideal cult would be like, you know, what, how, how could you ever make it work where there's a positive cult, you know, it's never quite come up with with the answer for that. I mean, having read this book, I know that there are probably countless different ways in which a reader could interpret the various parts of it. But after more than seven years of creating it, is there something that you hope that readers take away once they have it in their hands? You know, I'm always just hoping for that feeling of, you know, hearing from people who respond to it emotionally, who don't really understand what what they got out of it necessarily, but that it just has some kind of, it gives them emotions, you know, that it might make them sad or they might laugh or they might just feel something that's not quantifiable, not something you can put into words. I feel like the point of art is to express things that we don't understand and we don't know how to express in words. And, and I just hope to, you know, somebody gets something on that level out of it, you know, the same way I've gotten out of 
countless other works of art. That is Daniel Klaus. His new graphic novel, Monica, is out now. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Juana. That was wonderful. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Sixteen states have been underfunding their historically black land-grant colleges for decades. The shortfall is more than $12 billion, according to a recent analysis from the U.S. Department of Education. Tennessee underfunded its land-grant HBCU more than any other state in the report. Now, students there are amplifying their call for the state to pay that money back. For member station WPLN in Nashville, Alexis Marshall reports. We're inside the gymnasium at Tennessee State University. The school's Grammy Award-winning Aristocrat of Bands is playing. Students hand out free t-shirts and signs that say, we've been cheated. There's a DJ and some fiery speeches coming from the stage. Say we got the power. Do you believe we got the power? We gonna get it back. What's rightfully ours? Amen, all right. All of this is meant to hype up the crowd for a town hall that's about to start. University President Glenda Glover concisely explains the goal. No underfunding. That's the agenda. That is the entire agenda. For TSU, that means reclaiming a staggering $2.1 billion. That's the money the federal government says Tennessee owes to the historically black university. The feds compared per-student spending at HBCUs and predominantly white land-grant institutions. They found a huge gap. By law, they're supposed to be funded equitably. But that's basically never happened, says LaRotha Williams, a history professor at TSU. But it's very clear to anybody that pays attention to the history uh, of the states and their relationships with these institutions that they were never intended to be equal to their white counterparts. Now that the federal government is asking states to make up for the funding discrepancies, Williams says he's not optimistic. For starters, Republican Governor Bill Lee has not said whether he accepts the $2.1 billion figure from the feds. Instead, he pointed to $250 million the state invested in the school last year. And Republican Senator Bo Watson, who chairs the Ways and Means Committee, says he's not buying it. Will we have dialogue with our federal partners? Well, of course we will. But I'm not sure that their numbers are always as factual as they would like for you um, to believe. Um, So we will continue to use our analysis as our guide. The state admits to underfunding its HBCU to the tune of half a billion dollars, a quarter of the federal figure. But the school is not backing down on this issue. At the town hall, student Sean Wimberly Jr., who sits on the university board, encouraged his peers to join the fight. This is more than just a $2.1 billion issue. It's more than that. This is about our community. This, this is a story that's been written 400 years ago, and it still continues to this day. Wimberly says it's hard to imagine how much $2.1 billion could have transformed his school. And we're left to sit here as students, as alumni, as faculty, and wonder what could our university have been. This is a question HBCUs in 15 other states may be considering. 
The feds say North Carolina A&T and Florida A&M universities are also owed about $2 billion apiece. For NPR News, I'm Alexis Marshall in Nashville. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 448. And coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear that the war in Ukraine has forced farmers to abandon millions of acres in the nation's most fertile farmland. That and much more ahead on All Things Considered. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel and Egypt, tonight and Sunday, handelandhaydn.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. It is 66 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers tonight, overnight lows in the low 60s, some rain likely tomorrow, Saturday's highs in the upper 60s, on Sunday, mostly sunny, and temperatures reaching the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fair. Drop-off lunch service for celebrating Spanish Heritage Month in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. And Vertex. Working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. Hi, I'm Margaret Lowe, CEO of WBUR, here with a big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our fundraiser. We needed you to step up in a big way, and boy, did you. Fundraising has been really tough across the country, but once again, WBUR listeners rose to the challenge. We are blown away by your support. Thank you for believing. Thank you for giving. If you didn't get a chance to give and you'd still like to, go to WBUR.org and click the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Fog harvesting is a way to pull water from the air, and it's gaining popularity in places where climate change has made water scarce. As part of our week-long series on innovation in the face of climate change, NPR's Kat Lonsdorf reports from drought-stricken Kenya, where the idea of taking water from air is both traditional and brand new. 47-year-old Jacob Marungi doesn't sleep much. Instead, he and his wife spend nights in the forest across the street from their house high in the mountains, collecting water from the trees. It's early morning, and Jacob is standing next to a towering tree. At its base rests a large yellow plastic jerry can. Jacob explains that when the fog settles onto the mountain at night, it condenses on the surface of the trees. The water droplets roll down the bark onto a plastic sheet pinned to the trunk, which funnels it into the jerry can. This morning, it's cool. Jacob's wearing a wool hat and a maroon fleece, long pants and tall rubber boots. But the sun, strong at the equator, will soon warm the area. It's that heating and then cooling that causes water in the air to condense into fog at night. Jacob says that on an average night, one tree can fill five containers with water, more than 20 gallons. They're everywhere, Jacob says, pointing. All around the forest, jerry cans and plastic sheets seem to sprout from the trees themselves. Everyone in their small village gets water this way, he says. 
Jacob takes a container with some of that morning's haul across the street to their small house. He's a farmer, and he needs to get water to his two cows, who graze outside amid more empty plastic jerry cans. His wife, Rudia, takes a break from planting yams. She says the water from the trees covers all their household needs. Cleaning, cooking, bathing, water for the animals, and they boil it to drink it. I ask her who taught them how to collect water like this, and she gives me a wry smile. Poverty, she says, and laughs. The couple has been doing this for decades, and their parents did too. If they didn't have the trees, the closest water is at a school about a mile walk down the hill. They also collect rainwater, but fog is more reliable, and the rains rarely come. Finding water in many parts of Kenya is a struggle. The country is in the midst of the worst drought in decades, made more severe by climate change. Rivers are drying up, and the rainy season, once certain, has failed repeatedly. Water really is the first way that climate change is being experienced. Rachel McDonald is with the International Water Management Institute. She says humans have been harvesting fog and dew for a long time, but now, as scientists search to fill the increasing demand for water... It's fascinating how it's becoming a little bit more mainstream. Mostly using big mesh nets to trap the fog, condensing it to water, which drains into collection buckets. Of course, this is just mimicking nature. The plants that we see in our desert, they grow little hair or little outgrowths that as the moist air comes in, it, it traps it. In the last decade or so, fog harvesting projects have popped up in Morocco and Chile, Yemen and Ethiopia, across Southeast Asia, especially near coasts where water-drenched air is moved by the wind. And as McDonald points out, The great beauty, of course, there's no energy involved. The carbon footprint is pretty much nothing. One problem, though, fog isn't necessarily constant. It depends how long the fogs are available for. Is it a season? Is it three months or is it a year? But newer technology is going beyond the fog. It's also in Kenya, far from those mountaintop forests. In Kibera, the biggest slum in the capital city, Nairobi. Tucked into the winding alleyways of packed dirt and corrugated steel is St. Juliet's Primary School. It's morning break time, and two young girls walk down a set of wooden stairs carrying a bright green plastic pitcher. Outside, a boxy machine sits inside a metal cage, and beneath it is a tap. One of the girls puts the pitcher down and turns the tap, filling the pitcher with fresh, clean water in seconds. Their teacher, Chris Musonye, supervises. Before we had this system, it was challenging. We would waste a lot of time running up and down looking for water. The taps in Kibera often run dry. Right now, they've been off for three months. And the price to buy water has quadrupled. Many of these kids can't afford it. They could spend the entire day thirsty. But since we got the machine, the kids can be able to get at least enough water to drink. That machine was developed by a 32-year-old Kenyan woman named Beth Koigi. It uses fans to suck in hot, moisture-filled air and then cools the air to separate the water, much like a dehumidifier or an AC unit. The water is then filtered and minerals are added, making it safe for drinking. Beth grew up in a water-rich area north of Nairobi, but she moved east for college, where water was hard to find. So for me, it was a culture shock. Every time you have to think, oh, where do I get water for today? It was the first time she had to think about water. And then prolonged drought meant even her hometown's rivers dried up. She wanted to figure out a way to supply clean drinking water. Because I think you can survive without taking a shower, but you can't survive without water, like, for drinking. Beth eventually met some like-minded people at a climate conference, and together they founded Magic Water. That's magic spelled with a J. Now a few dozen systems can be found around Kenya. 
The technology is still expensive. That one at the school was donated. And it uses energy, often solar-powered. So it's not passive like traditional fog harvesting. That's why Beth says she wants her system to be seen as a kind of last resort. A lot of people are trying to think what is the easiest way to solve water crisis. But I don't think there is one solution. It's just a combination of many. A combination that includes exploring all the possible water sources, including right out of thin air. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Nairobi, Kenya. The war in Ukraine has forced farmers to abandon millions of acres of their most valuable land. That's according to a new analysis from NASA-backed researchers. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has more on why so many fields are going unplowed this year. NASA's Harvest Program uses satellite imagery to monitor agricultural production all over the world. They've been watching this fall as farmers in Ukraine harvest their crops, and what they see is startling. Somewhere between 6.5 and 8.5% of Ukraine's total cropland has been abandoned, which is a, a massive amount of land. Imbal Becker-Reshef is the program's director. Many of these fields lie near the 700-mile-long front line between Ukrainian and Russian forces. The area along the front line is some of the most important croplands in Ukraine. The unplanted fields stretch well beyond the anti-tank trenches and minefields both sides have set up in this brutal land war. Why? In a word, it's artillery. Patrick Hinton is an artillery officer in the British Army who studied the war. He says both sides are firing lots of rounds. Thousands of rounds a day, hundreds of thousands a month. And those shells can land miles behind the front lines. That's a pretty big swathe of land um, where metal could fall from the sky at any moment. Becker Reshef says despite losing this land, Ukraine managed to hold its agricultural output steady this year. Good weather and pure gumption are behind that success, but she estimates Ukrainian farmers lost around $2 billion because of the fighting. And as the war drags on, she thinks the costs will compound. Even if the fighting stops, she says. That abandoned land is very likely to be abandoned into the long term due to shelling, due to mining, due to contamination. And that means less food grown in a nation known as the breadbasket of Europe. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. It's NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Climate change is urgent and existential, but it is not hopeless. Every day this week on 90.9 WBUR, what you can do to address one of the most pressing issues of our time. It's Climate Solutions Week. Listen every day on the radio and the WBUR app.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the 58th Annual Head of the Charles Regatta, presented by BNY Mellon. See over 12,000 world-class rowers in thrilling competition, October 20th to 22nd, free at Herder Park and Riverbend Park, sponsored by Vineyard Vines and Senegenics. For more info, visit hocr.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. employers added 336,000 jobs in September. That's about twice as many as forecasters were expecting. It's Friday, October 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Florida Republican Matt Gates led the effort to remove the House Speaker and is winning praise from many constituents. To see him actually step up and out and do something that is going to move the party in a different direction, I was happy to see that. And a BU professor who won a MacArthur Genius Grant this week made some important discoveries about how carbon's absorbed from the air in urban areas. Vegetation in cities really mattered. And the trees in the city were actually about twice as productive as their country cousins. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is once again defending its decision to restart construction of a wall along the southern border. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports some congressional Democrats are accusing President Biden of going back on one of his signature campaign promises. In the months leading up to the 2020 election, Biden promised not to build another foot of border wall. Scott Jennings, a senior Republican political analyst for CNN, tells NPR that the president is now finding himself in an uncomfortable position. For Biden to come out now and say, yeah, we, we may need a wall, is sort of head-spinning for his the left-wing part of his base. On the other hand, you've got a majority of the American people, clear majority, who think the border is in crisis. Biden says he has no choice but to allow the construction of about 20 more miles of border wall because Congress already appropriated the funds during the Trump administration. Biden also said outright, walls don't work, while nonetheless conceding the need for physical barriers. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. President Biden took a bit of a victory lap amid the release of stronger-than-expected jobs numbers today. Speaking at the White House, Biden crediting his administration's policies with the government reporting the economy added 366,000 jobs last month. Today's job report is just another example of what it looks like when we focus on building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, not the top down while bringing deficits down at the same time. But at that same time, the healthy pace of hiring is a bit of a conundrum for the Federal Reserve, which has been trying to cool the economy and rein in inflation. Despite the strong jobs numbers, polls show many people still have a negative view of the economy. A three-judge panel from the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans heard oral arguments today in a case involving the redrawing of Louisiana's congressional districts. Molly Ryan with member station WRKF was there. Lawyers representing Louisiana Republican officials made their case in federal court to try to overturn a lower court's ruling that blocks the state's current congressional map. That map includes only one majority black district out of six, even though black residents make up about a third of Louisiana's population. 
The judges repeatedly mentioned sending the case to a full trial with an expedited timeline so the issue can be resolved ahead of the 2024 elections. The judges will still have to decide whether to keep or overturn the lower court's injunction, which will dictate what Louisiana's map looks like in the meantime. For NPR News, I'm Molly Ryan in New Orleans. One of the three people who have entered guilty pleas and agreed to testify against their former boss, Sam Bankman-Fried, coder and executive Gary Wong was on the stand today. Wong testifying that Bankman-Fried was the final decision maker at the company and also was aware of sister cryptocurrency trading operation Alameda Research has signed off $8 billion in customer money from FTX. Bankman-Fried has been charged with wire fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering, among other things. A strong update on Wall Street. The Dow rose 288 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are urging the Biden administration to work quickly to help Massachusetts handle the rising number of migrants. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley tells WBUR's Radio Boston that Washington is to blame for this humanitarian crisis. Failed foreign policy and immigration policy. And now we have a humanitarian crisis that is at levels we've never seen before. And so it requires more than we've ever done before. Newton Congressman Jake Auchincloss wants Homeland Security to visit the state to see firsthand what's going on. Auchincloss says the government needs to provide more money and needs to expedite work authorizations for migrants. We want Secretary Mayorkas to issue more muscular interim guidance about how work authorizations are processed so that more of the migrants living in shelters can get to work. Auchincloss says the state is doing the best it can to handle what he calls a tidal wave of migrants. A second person was arraigned today on murder charges after a pregnant woman who was hit by gunfire on a Holyoke bus delivered a baby who then died. John Luis Sanchez appeared in court via Zoom for his alleged involvement in Wednesday's shooting. Sanchez was shot and hospitalized. Another suspect was arraigned yesterday. Holyoke's mayor says a relief fund has been set up for the woman's family. Traffic is heavy and slow on the Mass Pike and at the Cape Cod Bridges. People are making a getaway for the long holiday weekend. There are backups on the Pike from Route 495 in Westboro to Sturbridge. At the Bourne Bridge, there's a two-mile slowdown. Traffic on the Bourne is restricted during an ongoing maintenance project. Heading on to the Sagamore, there's a two-mile backup. All road constructions halted through the weekend, although the Sumner Tunnel's closed for repairs most weekends. The Sumner is open this weekend. It is 66 degrees in Boston with lows tonight in the low 60s and a slight chance of some showers. Rain likely tomorrow, Saturday's highs in the upper 60s. Sunday, plenty of sunshine and temperatures in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The U.S. job market delivered another big surprise today. Employers added a whopping 336,000 jobs in September. That is the biggest jump in eight months. Job gains for July and August were also revised up. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with more on what this means for the broader economy. Hey, Scott. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, tell us, where did all of these unexpected jobs come from? 
You know, it's really broad-based. Uh, we saw jobs added in pretty much every industry, even those like construction and manufacturing that ordinarily get clobbered when interest rates go up the way they have been. Uh, there were big job gains last month in healthcare and education. And we hit a milestone in hospitality. Bars and restaurants added 61,000 jobs last month, and that means that industry is finally back to having as many workers as it did before the pandemic. I checked back in with uh, Lori Torres, who owns Mallorca Restaurant in Cleveland. The last time we'd spoken, Torres was having trouble finding enough people to help wash dishes. She says the picture is a lot brighter now. Not that I don't enjoy washing a good dish once in a while. It's very peaceful back there and quiet. But, you know, I'm not having problems finding people in the kitchen. I'm having more and more people coming in asking for positions as server and busser, and particularly right now as the holidays approach. Tori says some workers who had left the restaurant industry to work in warehouses or someplace else are now finding their way back to restaurants, and that's partly because uh, wages in the restaurant business are up about 13 percent from two years ago. Okay, and what about wages overall? What's happening there? They're still going up, but not as fast as they had been. Uh, Average wages in September were up 4.2% from a year ago, uh, and they rose just two-tenths of 1% between August and September. Now, that slowdown in wage growth could give some comfort to the Federal Reserve that even with all these new jobs, the labor market is not overheating in a way that might add to inflation. Uh, It's certainly not going cold, but it's not boiling over either. Uh, Economist Julia Coronado, who heads Macro Policy Perspective, says this is really a Goldilocks scenario. Wage growth is not accelerating, it's decelerating. But the good news for consumers is that it's been outpacing inflation this year. That's the sweet spot. The, The Fed could not ask for a better combination of data than this. When this report from the Labor Department first came out this morning, the stock market tumbled uh, as investors worried that all those new jobs might prompt the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates again. But once investors dug a little deeper and saw that wages are not increasing uh, too rapidly, uh, they got a little bit less worried about the Fed and the market turned around. The Dow Jones Industrial Average actually ended up for the day nearly 300 points. Okay, what about the unemployment rate? It's holding steady at 3.8%, same as it was in August. Unemployment has gone up a little bit since the springtime when it bottomed out around 3.4%, but it's still really low by historical standards. In August, we did see a big influx of new workers coming off the sidelines, and that's one reason employers are having an easier time hiring. Uh, It's actually good news because if you have more people in the job market, then you can grow the economy without sparking inflation. About 25,000 auto workers are on strike, and the union said this afternoon that it is not expanding the walkout for now, but could change in the days to come. How does that affect all these jobs numbers we've been talking about? Yeah, today's report is from a jobs tally that was taken in the middle of September, just before the UAW walkout. So it doesn't reflect those striking workers or the auto workers who've been laid off because of the job action. Uh, It also doesn't reflect the recent resolution of the Hollywood writer strikes. Now, those will show up in the October jobs report, especially if the UAW strike goes on for a while. The big takeaways today, though, are we have more jobs, more workers, and wages that are going up fast enough to boost workers' buying power, but not so fast as to fuel inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome.
After the unprecedented vote Tuesday to oust the Speaker of the House, Florida Republican Matt Gates was exactly where he wanted to be at the center of media attention. I think that this represents the ripping off of the Band-Aid, and that's what we need to do to get back on track. The people angriest at Gates for the removal of Kevin McCarthy from the speakership have been his Republican House colleagues. But back home in his district, NPR's Greg Allen reports Gates is more popular than ever. Matt Gates has been making political waves in Florida for a long time. The son of Florida's former Senate president, he was first elected to the state legislature 13 years ago. The head of Florida's Democratic Party, Nikki Freed, says she first got to know Gates when he was just a high school student. And as a college undergrad, she was helping run a debate tournament. And he was actually kicked out of our student Congress uh, for being disrespectful, disruptive, um, and and getting his way or the highway. And so unfortunately, uh, these are the patterns of who Matt Gates is. For some who've watched Gates' career, first as a member of the state house and now as a congressman, his actions this week are not entirely surprising. He's defended those who took part in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. He famously wore a gas mask on the floor of the House at the height of the COVID pandemic. A big Trump supporter to protest the former president's first impeachment, he organized an attempted breach of a secure facility where the proceedings were going on. But for some conservative Republicans in his district, Gates was all talk and no action. I felt like it was a lot of word service and that he was just saying things and that he wasn't uh, making things happen. Renee John Meyer is active in Santa Rosa County's Republican Party. At a Republican club meeting at a local restaurant, she said after his actions this week, engineering the ouster of the House Speaker and bringing Congress to a screeching halt, she has new respect for her congressman. To see him actually step up and out and do something that is going to move the party in a different direction. Um, I was happy to see that. Gates's congressional district on Florida's panhandle is one of the most Republican in the state. Easily won re-election every term since first going to Congress in 2016. Adam Caton, an associate professor of political science at the University of West Florida, says Gates's style plays well in today's GOP. He's combative, bombastic, conservative, doesn't shy away from very public conflict. So he's tapping into the same strain of feeling that is propelling Donald Trump to the leadership of the Republican Party. At the Republican Club meeting in Santa Rosa County, Patty Burke said she's been active in Republican politics for nearly 20 years and watched Gates's rise from Tallahassee to Washington. She conceded Republicans could now be seen as a party in disarray. It might be a risk for him. I'm glad he did it. In my view, The more the Congress isn't doing anything, the better off Americans are. Among these Republican activists in Santa Rosa County, there's a deep dissatisfaction that Democrats control the Senate and the White House. George Oatsma said he's happy with the turn of events, but he's not sure if Gates' actions will help the Republican Party in the long term. Ask me a year from now and I might be able to tell you. Republicans over many, many years We're always told we have to compromise, but whenever we do, we get nothing and they get everything they want. It just seems like that over and over and over again. As for Matt Gaetz, this week's events have raised his national profile. He's running for re-election in a safe congressional seat, but there's talk now that he may be raising his sights and considering a run for governor. After this week, Gates has gained name recognition, but there's a question about whether his in-your-face conservative politics would work in a run for statewide office. University of West Florida political scientist Adam Caton says there's a recent precedent. I mean, it's worth remembering that our current governor was a Tea Party-affiliated right-wing congressman with an anti-establishment brand. Gates says he has no plans to run for governor. 
but political observers note that plans do often change. The one job Gates says he's definitely not interested in is Speaker of the House. Greg Allen, NPR News, Pensacola, Florida. We're going to take some time now to remember Khalid Khalifa, the celebrated Syrian poet, screenwriter, and novelist, died late last month of cardiac arrest. He was 59 years old. Khalifa is considered one of the most important figures in contemporary Arabic literature, known for his vivid and moving writings. And he was regarded as a wordsmith, which also made him a powerful critic of Syria's government, resulting in his works sometimes being banned. He was once described as a weaver of worlds. Khalifa told the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in 2013 he's always been drawn to writing. Ever since I was a child, my only project has been to write. And naturally, there was a price to pay for a young man who wanted to become a writer. Writing always got you in trouble. Khalifa was born in the outskirts of Aleppo, a city nearly destroyed during the height of Syria's brutal civil war. He laid bare the anguish wrought by the conflict in a 2016 novel titled Death is Hard Work. It tells the story of three siblings who embark on a dangerous journey through the war-torn country. In this translated passage, a bereaved mother mourns her son, who was killed during the conflict, and her grief hardens into a cold rage. Victory in the revolution meant nothing to her anymore, other than the chance of seeing her son's murderers dragged through the streets. She was gripped by fantasies of revenge for losses, for which there was no possible restitution. After losing their compassion, a person becomes little more than another corpse abandoned by the roadside, one that should really be buried. She knew that she was already just such a body, but she still needed to die before she could find peace under the earth. And for her, dying was the hardest work of all. That was Isaac Abu Zanuna and NPR's Elena Burnett reading from Khalid Khalifa's novel, Death is Hard Work, with translation from Larry Price. Khalifa died on September 30th in Damascus, Syria. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518, and coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get the story on a new picture book about book bans. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. And Burton's Grill and Bar, with scratch kitchens customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in Greater Boston. Burton'sGrill.com.
In business news, a Japanese pharmaceutical company is acquiring a biotech that has its U.S. headquarters in Boston's Seaport District. Kiowa Kirin Company will shell out as much as $477 million for orchard therapeutics. With this purchase, the Japanese company gets Orchard's entire portfolio of gene therapies. That includes one drug approved in the U.K. and the European Union to treat a rare metabolic disease. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed up just under 1%. The S&P finished up just over 1%, and the NASDAQ ended the day up 1.6%. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities by partnering with customers to help those in need. More information at OceanStateJobLot.com. It's 66 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers tonight, lows in the low 60s. Rain likely tomorrow, Saturday's highs in the upper 60s, Sunday mostly sunny, highs in the mid-60s. WBUR's new Field Guide to Boston can help you discover and rediscover the place we call home. Neighborhoods, histories, history, urban legends, and some wicked fun stuff. Dive in now at WBUR.org slash Field Guide. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. How does our country's political dysfunction look to people in other parts of the world? This week almost began with a government shutdown, averted on the very last possible day by a bipartisan funding agreement. That compromise with Democrats was the last straw for hardline Republican lawmakers, and on Tuesday... Eight of them led the charge to remove fellow Republican Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. Well, to get a sense of how other countries see this, we have gathered Washington-based correspondents from three different parts of the world. David Smith is D.C. Bureau Chief for the British newspaper The Guardian. Good to have you here. Thank you. Patricia Vasconcelos covers Washington for the TV network SBT in Brazil. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And Amr Hassan Saeed is based here in Washington for Al Jazeera's Arabic language service. Good to have you here. Thank you, Ari. Will you each begin by offering us a headline, either one that you wrote about this week's Washington dysfunction or one that you think captures the way it is landing with your audiences in the UK, Brazil and the Middle East? Who'd like to go first? I could start. I would say McCarthy's downfall is a reflection of a party that refuses to be governable. A party that refuses to be governable. Okay, that's how it looks from Brazil. What about in the UK and in the Middle East? Certainly our headlines were in the same territory in terms of trying to govern the ungovernable. Um, I think somewhere along the line we quoted David Axelrod describing it as the the Lord of the Flies caucus um, in the Republican Party. And, and, and really uh, questions over, you know, how can this be happening in what purported to be the, the world's greatest democracy, certainly the world's most powerful nation, and um, 
some of our coverage has explored those longer trends of, of decline. There are some themes there that I want to follow up on. But first, what's the headline for Al Jazeera? I think um, I want to go visual bits more than uh, written. I think it was the image when we had Ilhan Omar sitting right behind Matt Gates when he was giving the speech, uh, the motion to vacate on the House floor. I think this was very telling and people in the Middle East really understood where she stands versus where he stands. It's so interesting to me to hear this from all three of you, because what I'm getting is that this is not just a story about American dysfunction or American political dysfunction. Your readers, your listeners, your viewers specifically understand that this is dysfunction within the Republican Party. And they even know who Matt Gates is, who Ilhan Omar is. I think when I speak about the Middle East, of course, Ilhan Omar is, is, is an icon by the very definition of the word. But then people are following the news in the U.S., not only because the U.S. is the greatest economy and its geography and its history, all of that considered, but they focus on the U.S. because it is the role model when it comes to democracy. So everyone back home, especially in countries like Egypt and Saudi Arabia, they really look up to the U.S. and they want to know, is this democracy still working or do we need to find other alternatives? And Patricia, when people in Brazil key into the Republican Party specifically, is that because they see parallels with politics in Brazil? I mean, there have been many comparisons between Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, both of whom are no longer in power, but still creating chaos to some extent. Yeah, I think that, of course, in Brazil, uh, many people there, our audience, see some similarities, especially because both countries uh, experience a, a very delicate situation of political polarization, right? Especially in the past elections and everything related to these actions led by a group of politicians, more extremists, uh, as we see now in the chamber and the House of Representatives and in other parts of the world, of course, is viewed with attention and, and interest. Um, from my side, I believe it's important to give uh, the difference between the two scenarios. And it's part of the work also to explain uh, why it happened and how it happens. Speaking of parallels, um, obviously in the UK, we've had uh, Boris Johnson, who earned many comparisons with Donald Trump, and we've had the era of, of Brexit. And um, even more recently, just the last few days, we've had the Conservative Party conference in Britain, um, which had resonance with what was going on in the Republican Party. Um, in both cases, you know, with the, the Tories in meltdown in, in Britain, um, you know, their conference was a bit of a damp squib. They seem to be heading for an election defeat. To, again, that really echoed what's going on with the Republicans, where you now have uh, a party in, uh, in, in disarray. Um, so um, that comparison was hard to miss. So is it reassuring to think, oh, well, it's not just us, this happens everywhere? Or is it frightening to think, oh, it's even happening in the US? <laughs> like, is it schadenfreude? Or is it a sense of tragedy? I think mainly a sense of tragedy because um, the world has so many priorities right now. And, and as you would expect, uh, you know, an international audience is particularly zeroing in on you know, what does this mean for Ukraine? People around the world uh, are watching with alarm that uh, seems an increasing number of Republicans in Congress are opposed to supporting Ukraine. And then just also that bigger picture of uh Democratic uh, decline. If uh, you know, if the U.S. is teetering on on chaos or authoritarianism, what does that mean for the rest of uh, the world? Let me ask about that specifically, because particularly in the developing world, the U.S. has so often presented itself, described itself as a beacon, as a role model, as an example of how democracy ought to be done, whether or not that has been true in the day to day of American democracy. 
And so in the Middle East and in Brazil, when you see American democracy in such disarray, what, how does that land? It's a feeling of surprise, I could say, for myself and also as a feeling in, in our newsroom in, in Sao Paulo, for example. We were not expecting this result. Um, um, McCarthy's confidence in the hours before the vote made it seem that he might have a chance to remain in power, but also because, as you said, the United States is seen as a model of everything works in a perfect way. Um, so the feeling is a surprise to see first what is happening and uh from that moment our work as foreign journalists is tried to dive in in that scenario and you know to explain the details to our audience considering the, the differences um among the countries and especially because in brazil we have a huge interest regarding everything that is related to united states not only politics mm. amar how does this land in some of the countries that carry your programming given the long history of the U.S. purporting to tell Middle Eastern countries how to do democracy? I think some people might have a slightly different perspective, maybe a more positive one, because um, as I was having conversations with people there, they were saying that this is democracy on full display. Hmm. It's self-corrective democracy. Now, you might describe it as chaotic right now, but what we're seeing is the Speaker of the House, the third person from the presidency, being toppled or being vacated from his position through a democratic process. So hmm. democracy works, but what's the end result? Is it leading to an incline or decline for the U.S.? That's what people are more interested in. And do, what's the tentative answer to that question? I would say that people are paying more attention to other examples like China, like Saudi Arabia, like wealthy countries in the Gulf as well. And they're trying to reach out to an understanding. Is there a um, monolithic path to modernity to being a developed country versus developing country or there are other forms of governance that people are trying to understand and grapple with and maybe get creative with if of course their political regime allows such creativity Amar Hassan Said of Al Jazeera, Patricia Vasconcelos of SBT in Brazil, and David Smith of The Guardian. So good to talk to all three of you. Thank you for your perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 529. And coming up in about 20 minutes, our conversation with a newly minted MacArthur genius in Boston, BU environmental ecology professor Lucy Hutira is researching urban trees and how they interact with carbon. It's 66 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers tonight, lows in the low 60s, some rain likely tomorrow with Saturday's temperatures in the upper 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Northeastern University's Institute for Experiential AI, with a day-long event leading with AI responsibly. Explore the impact generative AI technologies like ChatGPT have on business with experts from Chegg, Google, Fidelity, and more, Wednesday, October 18th. More at ai.northeastern.edu. Hi, I'm Margaret Lowe, CEO of WBUR, here with a big thank you to everyone who gave so generously during our fundraiser. We needed you to step up in a big way, and boy, did you. Fundraising has been really tough across the country, but once again, WBUR listeners rose to the challenge. We are blown away by your support. 
Thank you for believing. Thank you for giving. If you didn't get a chance to give and you'd still like to, go to WBUR.org and click the donate button. It's the one with the little heart next to it. Thank you. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The head of the United Auto Workers Union says its three-week-old strike against Detroit's top automakers is working, but more still needs to be done. The union held off today on adding additional plants to its targeted walkout, citing progress in talks, particularly with General Motors, which eliminated a major sticking point in negotiations, essentially assuring UAW members will be covered at electric vehicle battery plants. Here's UAW President Sean Fain. We were about to shut down GM's largest moneymaker in Arlington, Texas. The company knew those members were ready to walk immediately. And just that threat has provided a transformative win. GM has now agreed in writing to place their electric battery manufacturing under our national master agreement. GM's concession could be critical if its rivals follow suit. So far, about 25,000 UAW members have gone on strike, and Fain says more plants could be hit if negotiations stall. Southern California is in the midst of another heat wave. NPR's Nathan Rott says soaring temperatures are also raising the risk of wildfires for millions. Sure, it's now officially fall. But the temperatures here in Southern California have not seemed to get the memo. Triple-digit temperatures are expected in some inland desert areas over the next couple of days. Closer to the coasts, temps could still exceed 90 degrees. The National Weather Service and local health officials are recommending that people limit outdoor activities, stay hydrated, and check up on their neighbors through the weekend. Fire officials are also urging people to be careful in the woods. Strong Santa Ana winds, which have fueled some of the most devastating and deadly wildfires in Southern California in recent history, are expected to be blowing strongly, too. Nathan Rott, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. New research from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution offers the first conclusive evidence that the Gulf Stream is growing weaker. The powerful ocean current off the East Coast influences regional weather, climate, and fisheries. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports the finding could have significant implications for New England. The study shows the Gulf Stream has slowed by 4% over the last 40 years. Oceanographer and lead author Christopher Paikush says changes in the Gulf Stream and other ocean currents have profound effects on New England. We know, for example, over the past 100 years that, you know, southeastern New England has been warming really fast uh, compared to the rest of the eastern United States. And and folks believe that that is related to, to gradual changes in ocean currents. The study could not say whether the slowdown was caused by global warming or by natural climate cycles or if it will continue. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Tufts University today officially welcomed its new president. Sunil Kumar was inaugurated and is now the 14th president of Tufts. On his agenda, Kumar says he plans to increase diversity and expand housing for students. Worcester is looking for ways to help small businesses save on energy. Experts will meet with business owners to provide no-cost energy assessments and answer questions about energy-efficient equipment, upgrades, and other improvements. The city says the new program it's running with Eversource will help business owners save money and help the environment. Boston theaters will dim their lights tonight to honor a huge figure in local theater. 
Spiro Valudos was the producing artistic director of the Lyric Stage Company of Boston for more than 20 years. He was known for engaging audiences and for his infamous curtain speeches. Valudos died this week. He was 71 years old. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. Presenting Fat Ham, the 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Now through October 29th, HuntingtonTheater.org. It is 66 degrees in Boston, a slight chance of some showers tonight, lows in the low 60s. Rain likely tomorrow, Saturday's temperatures in the upper 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. This morning, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the Iranian human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi. For her fight against the oppression of women in Iran and her fight to promote human rights and freedom for all. That was the announcement by the Nobel Committee in Oslo, Norway, earlier today. The prize comes as Mohammadi is serving a lengthy prison sentence for her work toward gender equality. Here to talk more about the significance of the award is Azadeh Porzant. She studies human rights and is a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East and Global Order. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. First, just give us your reaction. What went through your mind when you heard that Mohammadi had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize? Um, yes, I mean, it's it's been a very bittersweet day. Um, uh, sweet because, um, well, for obvious reasons, this is probably the most prestigious award uh, in this field. And um, I think that Nargis Mohammadi and also the you know, Iranian women at large really, you know, did deserve this level of acknowledgement for their bravery and for standing up against injustice and um, demanding equality and freedom. Um, but also immediately after the sweetness comes the bitterness of the fact that um, this iconic human rights advocate, along with really many other um, uh, women of her caliber, are currently in, in, in jail in, in Iran simply for standing up for, you know, the voiceless and for um, for human rights, for women's rights, and many others have been in jail and or are exiled. And so um, it's a moment to just reflect mm-hmm. on the fact that probably at the, today she's maybe the most important, the most uh, talked about woman today in all the media, and, and we cannot even hear from her at this moment. We don't know if she knows she got the award mm-hmm. or not. I mean, given that the fact that she remains incarcerated, do you fear that the increased global attention she's receiving due to this award might put her in danger? 
I mean, yes, of course, uh, it will put her further um, at a risk. But I think in these kinds of circumstances, context and the personality and the choices of that individual really matter. The context is decades and decades of repression. And at this point, in my opinion, it's a war that the state has kind of declared on women and youth and minorities. Um, and Nargis Mohammadi is someone who has bravely made the choice over and over to take all the consequences uh, and to stand up for what she believes is, is the correct way ahead uh, around human rights and freedom. She's been repeatedly imprisoned. Every time she has been uh, released, she has almost immediately resumed her activism. Even in prison, she has um, done wonders in terms yeah. of activism advocacy. So I do think that Nargis Mohammadi understands the risks. And I do think that as horrible as it is to say she's she's ready for them and in my experience of her she will turn this into an opportunity for further activism what have you heard from people in iran how are they reacting uh i think that um, many uh, that i have seen and i've talked with are you know are happy are content they feel like this is an acknowledgement of 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 what really um, you know Iranian women and people have gone through and and also this being sort of um, soon after the anniversary of the woman life freedom movement uh, is sort of a um, uh, you know acknowledgement of the trauma and the bravery that the nation went through last year at the same time at the moment we even have a 16 year old in a coma um, in a in a hospital in Tehran who may have uh, it, it right. there there's seems to be evidence that she's a victim of the morality police. So again, the bittersweetness, I think, is um, is a common trend also on social media when it comes to celebrating this important moment. We have about 30 seconds left, but according to the prize committee, this prize goes to Mohammadi, but she shares it with the thousands of people who demonstra demonstrated against the Iranian government over the past year. Can you just sum up in a few words, what does that mean for the movement? It means that even if the their own government is repressive and violent against their peaceful dissent, the, the world has heard them loud and clear and that, um, you know, the world outside of Iran truly admires their bravery and okay. courage. And hopefully it means that they can go on with their flight. We'll have to leave it there. Azadeh Porzant, she's a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East and Global Order. Thank you. Thank you. A new children's picture book introduces little kids to a big topic. This book is banned. Words by Raj Haldar, pictures by Julia Patton. This book is banned isn't really about books being removed from libraries. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, it's a silly story about banning things like unicorns, avocados, and old roller skates. In This Book is Banned, the hippos don't like the giraffes. The hippos over here really don't like how those tall giraffes are getting all the leaves for themselves. One hippo's like, how rude, I'm starving. The consequences are brutal. Okay, no more giraffes, banned. And you think these hippos complain too much? Let's get rid of them too, banned. Raj Haldar was partly inspired to write This Book is Banned because of something that happened to him after his first book was published. P is for pterodactyl, the worst alphabet book ever, is all about silent letters and other spelling quirks. For the letter O, he used the word Ouija and ended up getting some hate mail.
Ouija is a, a silly game that people play on Halloween and, you know, they try to talk to ghosts. But, you know, I've gotten uh, emails where I have been called a tool of Satan. Haldar shared one such email with NPR. It's not family-friendly. P is for pterodactyl became a bestseller. Meantime, Haldar started doing some research on book bans. One of the really kind of important moments in my journey with This Book is Banned was reading about the book And Tango Makes Three. And Tango Makes Three by Peter Parnell and Justin Richardson is based on a true story about two male penguins at the Central Park Zoo who raise a penguin chick together. For a time, it was one of the most challenged books in the country, according to the American Library Association. Seeing that freedom to read is being trampled on in this way, like I needed to create something that could help them contend with the idea of book bans and understand the dangers of censorship, but, you know, allowing kids to also have fun. In this book is banned, there are sound effects. Fizz, buzz, whir. Ah. And Haldar breaks the fourth wall. Are you sure you want to keep reading? You do? You're having fun? I don't think you want to know what happens at the end, though. Haldar says one of his favorite books growing up was Sesame Street's The Monster at the End of This Story. It's this sort of meta picture book where, like, the book itself is trying to kind of dissuade you from getting to the end of the book. And that just makes kids want to get there even more. Kids in general, they're always trying to push at the edges of what they can discover and know about. Nothing says read me like the words banned book. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Marvel Universe's anti-heroic god of mischief, Loki, returned yesterday for a second season of the Disney Plus series which bears his name. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan says the show retains its singular charm while also reflecting some of the ongoing problems with Marvel TV shows and films. I couldn't imagine being a first-time viewer trying to understand the first episode of Loki's second season. That's because of dialogue like this, where Loki, played by Tom Hiddleston, is trying to explain to his friend and ally Mobius, played by Owen Wilson, that the killing of a villain who was manipulating the multiverse in the show's first season turned out to be a bad idea. We thought it was about freeing the timeline, but that brings only more malevolence, more violence, more war, more of him. They're coming. They're all coming. Okay, let's back up a bit. Loki, brother of Thor, adopted, and himself a villain in a few Marvel movies, was something of an anti-hero in the delightfully entertaining first season of this Disney Plus series in 2021. He resisted efforts by a group of timeline cops called the Time Variance Authority to stop the unbridled creation of alternate universes by eliminating key people known as variants. Turns out, spoiler alert, this whole system was created by a bigger villain, a version of the character Kang, played by Jonathan Majors. Now, as the show's second season begins, reality is coming apart, multiple versions of Kang are springing up, and Loki is being dragged between the past, the present, and the future. He turns for help to Mobius and an engineer called OB, played impishly by Oscar winner Kei Hui Kwan, who has a name for what's going on. Time slipping. Wait. You know that? Yeah. You've seen that? Yeah. Can you fix that? No. It's impossible to time slip in the TVA. I know, but we just saw it happen. Yeah. I'm having trouble reconciling that. 
What follows is a frenetic effort to save Loki from time slipping and save reality. But it's also an example of how storylines built around the multiverse can be both good and bad for Marvel TV shows and films. Yeah, it was fun to see many different variants of Loki in the first season, and Loki's bouncing through time this season is a cool throwback to classic comic book moments. But it also makes the ongoing storylines complicated and tough to join midstream. We don't see much of the charismatic partnership between Hiddleston's Loki and Wilson's Mobius early in the second season because they're too busy lurching from one fountain of explanation to another. Even a scene where Loki has jumped to the past and is trying to explain his problem to Quan's OB feels a little clunky. I was just with you in the future. Mm, I think I will remember that. Yes, but it, it, it hasn't happened to you yet. Do you see? Good point. It sure would be more convenient if we were having this conversation in the future and this were the past. We were. This is the... Never mind. Still, the second season of Loki promises to be more entertaining than recent Marvel streaming shows, thanks mostly to its strong cast and striking visuals. It is, however, a bit jarring to see majors here, given the actor faces prosecution in real life on charges of harassment and assault. As a comics nerd and Loki fan, I remain hopeful the show will maintain its status as one of Disney Plus's best original series in its second season, but it's gonna face obstacles a lot more challenging than time slipping to get there. I'm Eric Davis. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding with three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass. Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Climate change is urgent and existential, but it is not hopeless. Every day this week, here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear what you can do to address one of the most pressing issues of our time. It's Climate Solutions Week. Listen every day on the radio and the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for spring. bgsp.edu. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody, in for Lisa Mullins. Boston University environmental ecology professor Lucy Hutera spends a lot of her time studying trees. She began her career working in tropical rainforests in Brazil, then switched to studying urban trees in Boston. More specifically, how trees in the city interact with the carbon that's emitted from vehicles and buildings. Hutira's work has led her to be named a MacArthur Fellow. She's one of 20 winners of a so-called Genius Grant announced this week. Professor Lucy Hutira joins me now. Hello. Hi. And congratulations. So you were actually informed several weeks ago and were allowed to tell one person. So who did you tell and how did that go? 
I told my husband, who had never heard of it. <laughs> and Your husband had not heard of He had not heard of it, and uh, I was hyperventilating a bit. And he's like, are you okay? What is going on? And then he got on Google, and he found out, whoa, this is a really big deal. <laughs> So we've been talking about it over the weeks, and we did not tell my son. And uh, he's a quite clever 11-year-old, and he figured it out because the word genius was used more often than normal in our household. And uh, I apparently have a junior one. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, okay, so your focus is on the carbon cycle in urban environments, how carbon flows between the air, trees, and other plants, and the soil. What's the goal in all of that in terms of what you are trying to help cities do? So cities for the last decade, two decades, have been at the forefront of climate action. And Boston is actually one of the world's leaders in this front of aggressively trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And when I got to Boston for my faculty position, one of the first questions we started looking at and thinking about is, how do we measure progress? And so we set up a network of sites across the city, outside the city, measuring carbon dioxide in the air. And then we realized we needed more detailed information about emissions and combustion and where and when and from what source. And it got to be pretty clear that vegetation in cities really mattered. And the trees in the city were actually about twice as productive as their country cousins. So tree for tree, these urban trees are doing a lot to influence how much CO2 we have in the air. So you say that the urban trees are more productive. Exactly what does that mean? The rates of carbon uptake, the rates of photosynthesis are higher. The trees are growing faster than what the textbooks say that they should, than what we measure in intact, undisturbed forests, which is what ecologists have traditionally studied. A tree growing in the city is not competing with other trees for light. There's a lot of water either because humans irrigate them with a sprinkler system, or the trees can also tap sewer lines and water lines. My plumber can attest to this. And there's extra nitrogen coming down in the rainwater that acts as a fertilizer. What do your findings mean in terms of how city planners and developers should view the need to preserve and increase the number of trees in urban areas? I think that we should have lots of trees in cities, but there's a lot more nuance to that statement. We really need to think about where is there space for trees to actually grow and thrive? Are we going to invest the maintenance budgets to keep these trees alive? We should also think about the goals that we're trying to achieve. If we're trying to cool the city, trees are a great way to do it, but they're not the only way to do it. Another way you've discovered cities can take action involves roofs. Your lab released a study that found painting the roofs of triple-deckers white goes a long way in cooling city blocks. And that's important because all the pavement in cities creates what's known as urban heat islands. So why is it important to you as a scientist to look for these real-life, relatively simple steps that people can take to bring about change at a smaller level? 
Because we can't wait. The climate crisis isn't in a year, in 10 years, in 50 years. It's now. We've been living through it. And planting a tree today is fantastic. And in 10, 20, 50, 100 years, we'll be reaping the benefits of that. But the impacts of changing roof surfaces are felt the day the roof surface is changed. So this is not a substitute for planting trees. We should be doing both. Boston University environmental ecology professor and MacArthur fellow Lucy Hutira. Thank you and congratulations again. Thank you so much. If I imagine myself peaceful on the fire escape. The singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens has been making soulful, introspective music for more than 20 years without ever revealing too much about his personal life. His latest album, Javelin, is out today, and in an Instagram post this afternoon, the artist revealed more about the music and opened a window into his life, writing, This album is dedicated to the light of my life, my beloved partner and best friend, Evans Richardson, who passed away in April. Stephen Thompson of NPR Music has followed Sufjan Stevens' career for years and has given a close listen to this album. Stephen, thanks for being here to talk with us about it. Thank you, Art. Can you tell us more about what Sufjan Stevens said in this Instagram post? Well, the Instagram post fits a lot of information into just a few words. You know, he lost his partner, somebody he describes as his beloved partner and best friend. Uh, In the process, this is a coming out. Evans Richardson IV was, was a man. And the the post kind of goes into paying tribute to this partner he describes as an absolute gem of a person full of life, love, laughter, curiosity. It's just a beautiful reminiscence and a reminder to embrace the people closest to us and appreciate every moment we have with them. And he's also been public about his struggle this year with Guillain-Barre syndrome, an autoimmune disorder. Addressing these challenges publicly is a big change for a person who until now had always been relatively private. Yeah, and I th- I think the announcement of the diagnosis of Guillain-Barre syndrome, you know, that's a, a serious affliction of the nerves. He's had to be hospitalized extensively. He's had to relearn to walk. And, you know, he's been very open, you know, on Instagram posts sort of talking about the experience of, of just how debilitating that was and how much it's kind of affected um, you know, the the later part of this year. But that on top of this tremendous personal loss definitely recontextualizes the album. And as you say, you know, this is an artist who has has kept a lot of things about his life private, even as his music has remained extremely vulnerable. You know, he he put out an album called Carrie and Lowell that goes into into great emotional depth talking about his relationship with his mother. But at the same time, other parts of his life have been kept very private. And so now in one sentence, Sufjan Stevens came out publicly, revealed that he had a partner and revealed that the partner recently died. You have been listening to this album. Do you hear it differently in light of that context? Absolutely. And you can tell from the very first track on this record. The first song on the record is called Goodbye Evergreen. Goodbye Evergreen, you know I love you. But everything heaven sent must burn out. 
even just those words, Goodbye Evergreen, hit differently. His partner's name was Evans. I had interpreted the song on my first few listens, thinking it was about a breakup, or maybe it was a meditation on environmental collapse, you know, because of the references to nature. But when you hear it in light of this news, it suddenly takes on a much greater resonance. Stephen Thompson hosts our Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Thanks for talking with us about the new Sufjan Stevens album, Javelin. Thank you, Ari. I'm drowning in my self-defense. Now punish me. Think of me as what you will. I grow like a gas. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Strange Way of Life, the new English-language short western by Pedro Almodovar, starring Pedro Pascal and Ethan Hawke, now playing everywhere, only in theaters. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple insurers side by side, including options that offer same day approval. Learn more at policygenius.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Thanks for joining us this Friday evening here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 66 degrees, a slight chance of some showers tonight, tomorrow, rain likely, and temperatures in the upper 60s. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue will help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden pledged to stop work on the wall on the southern border, but this week his administration said it's moving forward on a piece of it. It's Friday, October 6th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, three journalists from around the world who report on Washington take a look at this week's chaos in U.S. politics. And John Oliver, the host of Last Week Tonight, discusses returning to the air after the writer's strike. It was obviously a hugely unsettling time for everybody who I work with. So the waves of relief are still hitting us. On Wall Street today, stocks closed higher. Marketplace has a full range of business news ahead at 6.30. It's 6.01. Now, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is weighing in on the prospects of House Republicans choosing a new speaker who is more of a conservative hardliner than ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy, 
As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, former President Trump has endorsed Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, a Republican from Ohio. Jordan has been one of the lead House investigators trying to dig up evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden, his son, and the Justice Department. Biden was asked if he could work with him. For some people, I imagine it could be easier to work with than others. But uh, whoever the speaker is, I'll try to work with. In remarks celebrating another good jobs report, Biden called for Congress to get back to work on passing a budget. The current temporary spending measure expires in mid-November. And at the moment, the House is at a standstill as Republicans try to choose a new speaker. Tamara Keith, NPR News at the White House. It's the third and final day of the largest health care sector strike in U.S. history. NPR's Anna Isaacs reports unionized Kaiser Permanente employees will return to their jobs tomorrow morning, but the threat of another possible strike still looms. About 75,000 nurses, techs, pharmacists, and other personnel walked off the job to pressure Kaiser executives to raise wages and hire more staff. The nonprofit healthcare provider is among the country's largest, serving about 13 million people. But Caroline Lucas, executive director of the Coalition of Kaiser Permanente Unions, told NPR this week that pay hasn't kept pace with the cost of living, and hospitals and clinics are chronically short-staffed. We have many members working 10, 20, 30 hours a week of overtime, and people are really, really just maxed out. More contract talks are scheduled for next week, but the union warns it could issue another strike notice if negotiations don't progress. Anna Isaacs, NPR News. The IRS has released new guidelines on how the tax credit for electric vehicles will be changing in January. For the first time, the credit will be available to buyers as cash at the point of sale, which means taxpayers will not have to wait until the next tax season to feel the benefit. Here's NPR's Camila Dominowski. The federal tax credit for EVs is worth up to $7,500 for new cars and up to $4,000 for used cars. There are income caps for buyers and restrictions on which cars can qualify. And until now, buyers had to wait until the next year to actually get the credit. Starting in January, that changes. Dealers will confirm if a vehicle qualifies and buyers will confirm if they meet the income cap and other requirements. Then the buyer can get the value of the credit from the dealer as cash or put it toward the car and dealers will get reimbursed by the IRS. This also means people can benefit from the tax credit even if they owe little to nothing in income taxes. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 288 points. The Nasdaq rose 211 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says the Biden administration needs to do more to help Massachusetts manage an influx of migrants. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Presley and other members of Massachusetts' congressional delegation have addressed the shelter crisis with political leaders on Beacon Hill. Last month, Governor Healy sent President Biden a letter pleading for more federal support. And Presley told WBUR's Radio Boston she hears that message loud and clear. Massachusetts taxpayers cannot be uh, burdened and fit the bill for what is a national crisis. For a sense of how big the bill for Massachusetts taxpayers might be, Healy last month asked the legislature for a quarter of a billion dollars to help prop up the shelter system. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Boston is getting $11 million from the federal government to plant more trees in the hottest neighborhoods in the city. Mayor Michelle Wu said today the initiative will expand the canopy of trees in Roxbury, Dorchester, Chinatown, and East Boston, areas where temperatures soar in the summer. 
Boston police are hosting an event this evening aimed at improving relations between officers and members of the community. Mary Ellen Burns is communications chief for the Boston Police Department. That's what community policing is all about, is just getting people together, getting them to talk, to know each other, because how do you trust people that you don't have some interaction with or talk to? So we try to get out and meet as many people across the city as we possibly can, and this is just another way to do that. The event is part of the National Faith and Blue Collaborative to promote mutual respect and understanding. The Honk Festival kicks off tonight. This is the first time the event will be in person since the pandemic began. 33 street bands will march through Somerville and Cambridge throughout the weekend. It is 66 degrees in Boston with some showers around tonight, lows in the low 60s. Rain likely tomorrow, highs in the upper 60s. Sunday, some sunshine and highs in the mid 60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When President Biden was running for office, he pledged to stop work on the wall. The wall on the southern border had been a signature policy of his predecessor, former President Donald Trump. But this week, his administration said, in fact, it is moving forward with a piece of that wall in Texas. Two of our correspondents are here to talk about why this is happening and what it means politically for Biden. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration, and Asma Khalid is our White House correspondent. Good to have you both here. It's good to be here. Hey, Ari. Joel, let's start with you. Where exactly is this segment of border wall, and why has it become this big flashpoint? Yeah, this is a segment of up to 20 miles of wall in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, rural Star County, just outside of McAllen, which has been a a big crossing hotspot this year. The planning for this has been in the works for years. The money was actually appropriated during the Trump administration, but it became a big deal this week when the Biden administration put a notice in the federal register saying that it would waive more than two dozen environmental laws to build this segment of wall. It is not the first border wall that's been built under the Biden administration. They have completed some other sections, but it would be the first major segment to begin construction on his watch. And as you've noted, this is a reversal of some of his earlier promises, and that has touched off a lot of anger. So, Asma, how did the White House justify this? What are they saying? Yeah, well, I was at the White House yesterday, and we went into the Oval Office for a few minutes to cover this meeting that the president was having with uh, a couple folks within his national security team. And he was pressed on why he's agreeing to build this new chunk of wall, despite the fact that he pledged during the 2020 campaign not to do this. And uh, I think we should hear the president's response in his own words. A border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. So are you basically what he was saying is that Congress has the power of the purse. They directed the money to be spent on this and he had to comply with the law. Uh, It is a message that he reiterated earlier today as well, that basically his administration had no choice in this matter. He was also asked by a reporter if he believes the border wall works. And he said simply no. Uh, This White House went through great lengths, I would say, in the last 24 hours to say that this is not an administration change in policy. They do not believe the border wall 
is effective. They think other, you know, tools, technology and surveillance would be more effective uses of this money. But ultimately, they say they have no choice. I want to say one last thing, Ari, here, and that is that the way that this was all rolled out, the Federal Register notice did cause a lot of confusion. And uh, this really dominated the White House press briefing yesterday. And I don't think the White House has been or was very clear about why it was doing it at this particular moment. Well, let's talk about how this fits into the Biden administration's border policy. Joel, can you put this development in context for us? Yeah. Well, so Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas also insisted yesterday that this is not a shift in policy when it comes to border walls. He said, quote, there will be no more wall construction, unquote. That said, the administration is very much trying to get illegal border crossings down. Those crossings were lower for a while over the summer after the administration rolled out some new legal pathways and tougher enforcement measures at the border. But now crossings are climbing again sharply near the record numbers that we saw last year and a single-month record of 50,000 Venezuelan migrants crossed in September, fleeing from economic and political turmoil there. The Biden administration said yesterday, by the way, that it will resume deportation flights directly to Venezuela, but it is not clear how many flights there will be or if that's really going to have much of an effect on migration. Yeah, and if I can jump in here, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the president has been under enormous pressure on this issue of immigration, of course, from the right, but also now from Democratic mayors and governors who are saying that their cities are overwhelmed, their resources are overwhelmed with just the sheer number of migrants who have been arriving. And in recent weeks, there have actually been a flurry of meetings between top White House officials and some of these governors and mayors, Democrats. And President Biden is needless to say running for election. So talk about the politics of this. How is this likely to play with constituents? I think the real place where this could potentially pose a challenge for Biden is with the progressive wing of his own party, younger Democratic voters. Uh, They are disappointed that he did not choose, they say, to slow walk this border wall, that even if he had to comply with it, is there not some way in which he could have maybe just may kind of let the clock run out here? Uh, For example, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of New York said yesterday that the Biden administration did not have have to waive the environmental laws to expedite this process. I will say the White House is extremely sensitive to the fact that young voters are a key part of their coalition that they need for Biden to win re-election. Uh, there's been a whole slew of things that they've announced recently. I'm thinking of the Climate Corps, this gun violence prevention office, that really are issues that matter to young voters. I don't really know how this will all play out. I will say, though, that the challenge Biden faces, I think, on immigration is that it's an issue where he's pushed on the right, but he's also pushed from different flanks of his own party, and Mm -hmm. they don't all agree on what to do. NPR's Asma Khalid and Joel Rose, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. This week, you might have indulged in a long-forgotten pleasure, sinking into your couch for your favorite late-night shows. Shows like John Oliver's Last Week Tonight. Late-night shows like his went dark in May because of the writers' strike. But now that writers and studios have reached a tentative agreement, Last Week Tonight is back in production. And in the latest episode, Oliver did not hide his frustration with how long it took to strike a deal. It took a lot of sacrifices from a lot of people to achieve that. And while I'm happy that they eventually got a fair deal and immensely proud of what our union accomplished, I'm also furious that it took the studios 148 days to achieve a deal that they could have offered on day one. John Oliver is here with me now. John, welcome to All Things Considered. It's lovely to be with you. So, first of all, 
Just how does it feel to be back on the air? Oh, it's a massive relief. I mean, not so much to be back on air, but just to be back having everyone at work. Uh, you know, it was obviously a hugely unsettling time for everybody uh, who I work with. So, yes, the waves of relief are still hitting us. If you could think back to what it was like when you learned that there was an agreement and that the writers that you have worked with who helped build the show, that you all were able to work together again, what did it feel like for you? It was a huge relief for, again, for everybody, not just the writers, right? It was difficult for everybody just to be without the innate purpose that you feel of getting to do your job every day. We really do love this. As much as we're exhausted and irritated by it at times, it's so much fun. It's such a fun way to spend a significant portion of your life. So to get to do it again, to get to kind of direct this machine at fascinating stories once more is still I, I'm hoping that that my staff and that I kind of are able to kind of bottle this feeling of excitement and relief uh, and to remember remember that feeling in three months when we're completely exhausted. For sure. Is there one thing that you think it's important for people to understand about what goes into making a show like yours and the people who you work with day in and day out that help you put it together? It's a massive collaborative effort. So I know this this strike was just about the writers, but we have researchers, footage producers, graphics. It's at its best, this show functions as something that ends up much better than the sum of its parts. There's value added at every point of our process. So only as you get people all together can you kind of take these stories and have them rigorously researched with fascinating footage and utterly silly jokes on top of it, hopefully making the whole thing go down easier. As you were spending those five months waiting to see what the outcome of the strike would be, obviously hopeful that it would be one that was beneficial to the writers, was there like a particular moment in the news cycle that you were sitting there that was painful for you to miss, to not be able to play with? I mean, honestly, it wasn't so much individual stories flying by. It, it was more knowing the big stories, those those main deep dive stories that we work on, knowing how badly we wanted to put some of those on air. And honestly, it was really more concerns about practicalities. You know, you, when you run these shows, you're responsible for a lot of people. They have to be paid. You can't just cut them off. It was more kind of a constant background terror of how are we going to make sure that people are paid. How are you all able to keep people paid? Stand up. Stand up. I'm so, so grateful. I, ca I cannot tell you how grateful I am for people that came to see me around the country doing some very hastily written stand up. <laughs> that was, you could make a case for the fact some of that stand up was not yet fit for human consumption, but people consumed it. And I'm massively grateful because yeah, everyone who came to see me do stand up in theaters around the country uh, really directly helped us. Uh, pay our staff. So that, yeah, that's really, that's the short answer. That's how. So the Writers Guild has called the deal that it struck with studios, quote, exceptional. And I know that that contract is still being ratified, but what terms in the new agreement were most important to your team? What have they told you about it? To our team? I mean, it's, it's so broad, right? So, so much of the contract honestly doesn't really apply to late night variety shows. But I think it's really more incremental gains across the entire industry going forward at a point where it seems like the industry is undergoing something of a seismic shift. So, you know, how well it works, you can never tell right on the page, right? It's the application of that is where the proof is in the in the pudding then. So we will see if it's uh, if it's as good as everyone wants it to be going forward. 
does it feel like the studios have a new understanding of what these writers need? I have no idea. I have no idea. I would, you would really hope so, but I, I would have hoped that understanding was evident on day one. Uh, so I, I could not crawl into a studio executive's head, <laughs> partly because I cannot imagine what kind of a place that is to live in. That was John Oliver, host of the late night TV show last week tonight. John, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Juana. It's lovely to be with you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace comes your way at 630. You'll hear about Levi's. It turns out one reason for the company's drop in quarterly revenues. This summer, people felt like it was too hot to wear jeans. You'll get the story on how climate change will affect household finances. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. On Wall Street today, stocks finished higher. The Dow closed up just under 1%. The S&P finished up just over 1%. And the Nasdaq ended the day up 1.6%. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. And Ocean State Job Lot whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. Every time a mass shooting occurs in America, the questions begin, who did it and why and why can't we make it stop? What's often forgotten, the centuries of history that got us here. The Gun Machine podcast from WBUR explores this background. Guns, government, and the Massachusetts roots of the situation. Listen and follow The Gun Machine on your podcast app. It is 66 degrees in Boston with some showers around tonight. Tomorrow, rain likely. Saturday's highs in the upper 60s. On Sunday, mostly sunny and temperatures in the mid-60s. Looking ahead to the holiday on Monday, sunshine and highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Juana Summers in Baltimore. 
I am standing just outside of one of the gates to Camden Yards, which is where the Baltimore Orioles play. It is a perfectly crisp fall night, and fans are still streaming into the ballpark, many of them wearing hoodies and jackets, along with their Orioles jerseys. Something different is happening here this year, and it's something that hasn't happened for the Baltimore Orioles in years, and you can really feel it all over the city. Yeah, I keep asking, is this for real? I can't, you know, I have to pinch myself. Is this really happening? That's Orioles fan Joanne Mandel. For someone like her, who's been a fan since she moved to Baltimore, 50 years ago, that's a big deal. I met her and Kathy Buckner as they were walking away from the stand that was selling black and orange Orioles shirts and hats. They both have long memories of this team. Here's Buckner. I remember the 66 World Series and the 80s when there was big birds and everything was exciting. And then it just, uh, everything sort of fell apart. And it was frustrating to watch. It was tough to stay a fan. How did you do it? Because it was, did not seem fun. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's some black and orange somewhere in my blood that, that still was there. She is talking about the dark days of being an Orioles fan, when diehard fans suffered through years of despair. The Orioles won their last World Series in 1983. And in the four decades since, the team hasn't been back. And some recent years have been rough, Three recent seasons, the Orioles recorded at least 108 losses, but not this year. The Orioles ended the regular season with a historic 101 wins, and as the American League East champions, only one team in the major leagues had a better record. And tomorrow, the Orioles will play the Texas Rangers in the American League Division Series here in Baltimore. I mean, if you're a true fan, this is like your Christmas. That's Maureen Hall. We met her just outside the gates to the ballpark. She and her friend Robin Goodwin were decked out from head to toe. Hall was sporting a black Orioles jersey and orange camouflage pants, and she wore this oversized Oriole bird hat. Goodwin was carrying a hand-painted Orioles shield. And both of them were wearing these big orange chains with Oriole O's hanging from them. Tell us about these outfits. We're here to win a World Series again. <laughs> yes, definitely a World Series. Yeah. yeah, we'll go right to the World Series. All right, so we've got the hats, we've got the chains, we've got the shields. Do you just turn up like this for every game that you go to? Yes. Oh, this is mild. Wait yes. till Paul and Goodwin told us <laughs> they have been waiting years for an Orioles team that looks as good as this one does. It's like a light at the end of the tunnel. But this team has also inspired a new generation of fans, like 16-year-old Mai Bolster, who was carrying this huge baseball-shaped double-sided sign. My mom helped me with these. Um, this side says, I want an Adley hug. An Adley hug. That's a reference to Orioles catcher Adley Rutschman, who's one of the team's young stars. I was definitely a fan in, like, when I was younger, like, maybe 2015, 16, but then I kind of didn't watch them as much for a, a little bit. Um, I, my dad did, I know that. <laughs> Mai came to the game with their dad, Peter. What do the two of you like about going to games together? They're funny. And I, they, they, like, they like the game, so that's pretty cool. It's I, not, not often your father and kid get to go to a game together. So. I, I actually watch more of the actual game now, though. <laughs> when I was younger, I didn't. I was more interested in maybe the cotton candy or the playground. Peter Bolster told us he moved to Baltimore back in 1989, and before that, he had never lived anywhere with the team he could root for. And that was one of the good years. And so I kind of caught the fire at that, at that moment. 
And ever since then, I've been a pretty avid fan. Uh, the last few years have obviously been pretty dismal, and uh, it was even really starting to stretch my ability to be a dedicated fan. That is ancient history. If you live in Baltimore now like I do, there's a tangible energy around this team. There's hope, community, and just plain excitement. You walk down the street and you hear the game coming out people's windows. That's John Mioli. He's a sports columnist for the Baltimore Banner. You think about how different that is from recent years and and, and it kind of goes to show just how worthwhile all the work that's taken uh, this organization to get to this point, how worthwhile it was. That work that Mioli's talking about, it took years, starting right after the team's dismal 2018 season. That's when general manager Mike Elias took over. At the end of 2018, the team hit a wall and started breaking apart, and it was the worst season in the history of the Baltimore Orioles. To be clear, it was awful. 47 wins, 115 losses. Some of the infrastructure deficits that the front office had in baseball operations, a lack of a strong international scouting operation, a lack of a modern analytics department, um, some fractured unity in, the, in the, the way the organization was run for the last few years, it all came to a head and we needed to start over. Elias has stockpiled young talent and revamped the Orioles' infrastructure to develop it. And that long rebuild has paid off with the likes of young players like catcher Adley Rutschman and shortstop Gunnar Henderson. And many of those young players have never been in the postseason spotlight before. We asked Mike Elias how he was preparing them. You know, we have a few veterans in the team that have had some postseason experience, but really it's it's not that much, relatively speaking. And so this is going to be new for the whole team, but they've been uh, had the odds stacked against them every day. So I don't think the playoffs are going to be much different from them and pretty level headed. I think they'll be excited. There'll be some butterflies, maybe some early jitters, but I expect them to play very well. When we talked to Elias, he was also very clearly thinking about building a team that has staying power beyond this historic season. We want to keep our franchise at a championship caliber like this so that every year we go into the American League East with a chance to win it and uh, hopes of making a deep playoff run. The immediate question, though, is where this year's team will go from here. We asked the fans, starting with 16-year-old Mai Bolster. Do you feel like this team that we're watching this season has the ability to go the distance? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was fast. A little less definitive, but still supportive answer came from Eric Biorum, who started following the Orioles in the 70s, and he hung on through the highs and the lows. He drove down from York, Pennsylvania to see the Orioles play. If not this year, next year, playoff is different than regular season games. And you have to gain experience, and they have this young core, this unbelievable core of players, I think they're in for the long run. Lachelle Pierce Fogel loves coming to games with her big extended family. She told us she is rooting for the Orioles, but also for the city. You know, it's so much opportunity right here around the park, um, in the park itself. So us winning, like it, Baltimore needs a win. So this is great. And now these fans will wait to see just how far these Orioles fly. Juana sounds like an exciting time there in Baltimore. 
You know, it really has been. I have to tell you, I drive down from Baltimore to Washington to host this show with you and our colleagues every day. And this morning, I drove right past Camden Yards, and there were a ton of people around, tons of cars, and I didn't know why. And then I looked, and I saw that tons of drivers were actually waiting in line to get these bright orange Orioles O's stenciled on their car. So if that's not an indication that we are swept up in Orioles magic in Baltimore, I don't know what is. I might have to go up the road and take a look. Come on by. This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us this Friday evening here on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. And join us at City Space for a special culinary evening. James Beard-nominated chef Yaya Noor comes to City Space Wednesday, October 18th to discuss Somali food, halal cooking, and his hit restaurant in East Boston. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It is 66 degrees in Boston. Some showers around tonight. Rain likely tomorrow. Highs in the upper 60s on Sunday. You'll get some sunshine with highs in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, committed to strengthening democracy. Join a discussion on Supreme Court reform October 25th, emkinstitute.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com.